once upon a time, not 2,600 years ago, but in my lifetime. It was about a year after I got ordained uh, as a Zen monk, so a different tradition in the Zen, Zen Buddhist tradition. And I was practicing very diligently, very earnestly, really putting a lot of effort into my practice. And I really hit this internal wall. So I still remember it because it was, it was in the evening. It was actually at a Zen center in, uh, that was connected to the Zen monastery I was with in, in Los Angeles. With the, sometimes you know the cool breeze that can come in certain parts of uh, Los Angeles, like during the spring. And it was this stark realization that came upon me that my diligent practice uh, that I was putting so much effort into was being fueled by this deep sense of unworthiness, a, a, a real sense of lack. And it really felt like the way I was practicing was simply reinforcing this idea that something's wrong with me. And it was a whole cycle, it was this dynamic. So I'd practice really diligently, having this wanting to be a kind person or a really mindful person, or most importantly, a free person. And so sometimes then there would be this strong experience of, of, of really steady mindfulness, or the heart would open in some kind of way. But then, as you know, it would go away. <laughs> Such mind states would disintegrate. Or maybe strong aversion would arise, or just moments, minutes, hours of mindlessness. <laughs> and boom, there I was, back in that world of unworthiness. Something's wrong with me. It just shows me that I can't do this. And then I'd climb out of that, practice really hard, maybe have a good experience like that, and then boom, I was back in that rabbit hole again. And here was this cycle, I was like on this hamster wheel, like there'd be good times in my practice where I'd feel really good, like I was getting somewhere, and then bad times where I was just back in those same old stories about how unworthy I was, how I couldn't do this. And really so devastating. And then to see the cycle was so painful. It was like fueling my practice in some way. And there I had, I had this belief of, of maybe if I practice really hard, I can stop being a person who feels like they're not good enough. Become someone who feels like they're good enough all the time. Maybe you're beginning to hear the setup of such a way of relating to experience. And really what I'm describing is you could say it's a, it's a particular flavor of what the Buddha called becoming, or in particular, uh, bhava tanha, the craving, the craving to become, the craving to become somebody. And so much of a feeling of, of unworthiness, of what, the way I experienced, is such a, uh, can be such a beautiful expression. Not a beautiful expression, a, quite a dark expression of this bhavatana. So 
So tonight I, I want to share with you a little bit about this dynamic of this sense of lack, this hamster wheel that maybe some of you have found yourselves on or can begin to, to see. And hopefully ways to navigate it. And, and really finding these ways of navigating it gives us a deeper sense of really what this path is about, really what awakening and the Dharma is about. So again, the cycle, and, and again, you know, some of you might be able to relate to this, others not so much, but you might see this in some kind of way, this cycle. And sometimes the, the two words that seem to uh, capture it for me is, if only, you know, if only I was more mindful, if only I was more concentrated or more kind or more loving, or more lovable, or more likable. Ah, then, 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 uh, then I'll be happy. Or only, if only I was less judgmental of myself or of others. Or at least, if only I wasn't as messed up or unlikable. But that, un- if that, if only, can really start to create this cycle the cycle of this bhavatanha of trying to become somebody in a way that's actually just leading to suffering. It's the same hamster wheel that I just described. And I want to point out, having an aspiration towards something like mindfulness or kindness, that's not the problem. That kind of aspiration of, or even the aspiration for awakening in some kind of way or healing. It's not the problem, it's how the mind is relating to it. And that's what was going on in my own practice, is that I had taken practice up in a way almost to beat myself up. So this aspiration to practice and even the diligence wasn't, wasn't so much the problem, it was the way I was relating to it that got so entangled. And I think this is important because sometimes how we're relating or how we come to our practice can be quite complicated in some way. So it's good to have a sensitivity to this so that we can really be on this path towards freedom. Being aware of the cycle of not enough or I'm unworthy. You know, I, I think... Maybe all of us, maybe not, but maybe many of us come to this path with, uh, with not always the most skillful motivations. Maybe that's just the way it is. I remember there was this um, Chinese, uh, there was a scholar of uh, Chinese Buddhism and also a practitioner, and he'd gone over to China and was traveling around to these remote monasteries and he was in this very very remote monastery for with about it was something like 10 monastics it was a poor monastery they didn't have a lot of food and he was staying there for quite a while and while he was there somebody showed up to the monastery and uh the guy was completely running from the law (laughs) 
didn't even care about practice. So he was there, he was eating all their food. They didn't have a lot of food, but he was just eating all the food he wanted. He was stealing things from the monks. He was not sitting. He was really, really a pain in the ass. <laughs> and this, this guy, this, this scholar practitioner was like, we got to get rid of this dude. He's really screwing up the monastery and you're not going to have any food to eat if you allow him to hang out here. You know, he's not interested in Buddhism. Remember that. He's running from the law. It's really clear. <laughs> Whereas the monastics are like, oh, no, 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 no. He, he, he has somehow come to the Dharma. <laughs> oh, we have to honor this. Here he is. He's, he's now come to the Dharma. So we, this is such a special opportunity in this kind of way. Of course, I think the guy was kind of rolling his eyes. <laughs> And luckily, he did say after about a week or two, actually, the police had hiked up to this place and found him and, and dragged him away. But, but maybe in some way, all of us, I know, maybe in the story I just told, I can see, I too am just like that, that thief that ended up at the monastery. Maybe I'm here for these reasons, but... But I know that when I touch the Dharma, when I, when I get to taste the Dharma, it can transform how I'm practicing in a different view. So maybe to, you too are somehow running from the law just here for the good food. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? <laughs> and yet, I think we can trust the Dharma will clarify really what a freedom is and what awakening is. So in some ways I want to normalize my dilemma that I had with such a deep sense of unworthiness. It's just the, the way we come to this and what a beautiful thing to know that, that our relationship to practice gets clarified as we practice. So here's this, the dilemma that, that many of us might Experience, and I, I want to say there's so many different forms of this quality of unworthiness or self-hatred or, or uh, really holding ourselves in such unskillful ways. And I want to point out that this quality of feeling like we're never enough, often it's just, right, we come by it honestly in the sense of so often it's inherited by family, those messages we get from family and society Sometimes it's messages around success of what is possible for us, or sometimes messages of what's not possible. There's a great poem, kind of a humorous poem by Billy Collins about this called uh, My Favorite 17-Year-Old High School Girl. And you have to imagine, this is kind of the the setting, maybe seeing um, a parent with their 17 year old high school girl at the dinner table having this conversation. So this parent talking to their 17-year-old daughter. That's how the poem goes. Here's the parent speaking, I'm sure, to the child, to the 17-year-old. Do you realize that if you had started building the Parthenon on the day you were born, you would be all done in only one more year? Of course, you couldn't have done that all alone, so never mind. 
you're fine just being yourself. You're loved for just being you. But did you know that at your age, Judy Garland was pulling down $150,000 a picture. Joan of Arc was leading the French army to victory. And Blaise Pascal had cleaned up his room. No, wait. I mean, he had invented the calculator. Of course, there will be time for all that later in your life after you come out of your room and begin to blossom or at least pick up all of your socks. For some reason, I keep remembering that Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England when she was only 15. But then she was beheaded, so never mind her as a role model. A few centuries later, when he was your age, Franz Schubert, was doing the dishes for his family, but that did not keep him from composing two symphonies, four operas, and two complete masses as a youngster. But of course, that was in Austria at the height of romantic lyricism, not here in the suburbs of Cleveland. You know, frankly, who cares if Annie Oakland was a crack shot at 15, or if Maria Callas debuted as Tosca at 17? We think you're special just being you. (laughs) Playing with your food and staring into space. (laughs) By the way, I lied about Schubert doing the dishes, but that didn't mean he never helped out around the house. So sometimes we get these subtle messages of not being enough. (laughs) And I want to point out, this is all around us. I want to name the collective dimension of of never enough. I, I find myself thrown into a dominant culture that always is telling me that I can never have enough. Consumerism the way corporations are set up. We have the largest military in the world. We can never be safe enough. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world. Again, never ever can we be safe enough. And noticing just this last one, how this last one can happen around those oppressive lines of who the dominant society has deemed to be better than and less than. These complex dynamics of unworthiness that affect us in our families, in our communities, on the streets. And we struggle with it individually and collectively. And I want to point, and even if we don't have this kind of wounding, which might be close to impossible if we're living in such a society, I want to point out how subtle becoming can be and how entangled we can get into it. Like, have you noticed the stories that keep on popping up in your minds? It's like my mind's trying to become somebody in the future in that conversation with my friend that I want to have that argument with, and I win. or trying to rewrite the past in some kind of way so I can be a different person, not the person 
that that happened to in the past. Story after story after story. And again, there's nothing wrong with stories or the mind trying to figure out what we need to do in the future. But it's when I'm hooked by it that I can confine my life so narrowly. This is becoming, this is bhavatanha. And even more subtle, this comes from Ajahn Sumedho. He said, when I started practicing meditation, I felt I was somebody who was very confused and I wanted to get out of this confusion and get rid of my problems and become someone who was not confused, someone who was a clear thinker, someone who would maybe one day become awake. But then by reflecting on this position that I am somebody who needs to do something, I began to see it as merely a created condition, a construct of the mind, you could say. I began to see that this quote, I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become awake in the future was an assumption that I had created. So hopefully you're hearing how subtle this is. So much of our lives we spend with this idea that I am somebody that needs to do something. And I think it fits with this idea, this common idea that, that we're, we maybe start over here and I'm somebody that needs to do something. I'm confused. And then I do this practice some. And so I move over here a little bit with the practice and I get less confused. And then I move over a little bit more and even less confused. And then finally I'm over here and I'm awake. And Ajahn Sumedho is is wondering about this story that we always tell ourselves, that I'm here and then I do something to be over here to be this person. And then finally I'm over here being this person, the person that is no longer confused and awake. And this is really the story I want to say of early Buddhism, is that we cultivate wholesome states of mind over here, and then these unwholesome states of mind start to go away, and then eventually there's no more of these unwholesome states of mind. So the first thing I want to point out is, I love this story. It's actually such a helpful story, and it's a story I use a lot in my practice. And there's nothing wrong with the story whatsoever. The problem comes when, in terms of how I relate to it, how I, how I can get hooked in it, how I can get entangled with my stories of unworthiness. The story of a linear progression can be really helpful. But it's really helpful to also remember, it's just a story. Once upon a time, I was here, and then I got to be over here. Yet we get confused by the story because it can get entangled with bawa tanha, with 
becoming somebody in a way that doesn't support us, that doesn't lead to awakening. So how do we be free of this becoming, this particular flavor of becoming around unworthiness? How do we stop making a mess out of such a beautiful story of that I start over here and then end up over here? And I want to point out that There are many ways of working skillfully with this story that I start over here and end up over here. But I'm not going to talk about that. (laughs) That'll be for next retreat. What I'd like to do instead is to see that there might be some other stories that can be interesting to take up to help us with our practice. And I want to point out, it's the same practice that I'm talking about. I'm not asking you to change what we're doing or what all of us have been teaching you, but just to maybe surround it with a different story you might find helpful at times. And is the, are the stories that I'm telling you in contradiction to this story of some kind of linear progression. Yes. And I remember a quote from Walt Whitman to help me get through this. He says, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am vast, I contain multitudes. So tonight I'm inviting you to see if you can hold a multiplicity, multitudes, to be okay with contradiction. There's so many contradictions in life. Why, do, why, why spend so much time trying to sort it all out, all out? Such a complicated endeavor. So let's begin with another story. And the story I'm going to share with you comes from, you could say, a later embodiment of Buddhism, later than Theravada Buddhism. Something uh, comes from a a text called the Lotus Sutra, which I think the the first written, um, when it was first written down, it was in Chinese. And what I imagine, what I imagine the background of this text being is practitioners like you and me that struggle with different stories and then found a story that was so helpful for the awakening of their hearts. And so they wrote it down and passed it to us to allow us to continue to move towards awakening. Once upon a time, there was a mother of great wealth and nobility She had, we'll say, a daughter. And at a very young age, the daughter gets separated from her mother and ends up living in other countries, far away, wandering around, seeking food and work and shelter. 
And after many, many years, decades go by, and the daughter, unaware of it, enters back into the country, the land that her mother rules over, the land that her mother lives in. And one day, the mother is out and actually catches sight of her and recognizes her as, ah, this is my daughter, my long lost daughter. And the mother sends, sends a messenger to her to contact her and bring her home to her rightful home. But as these messengers begin to go towards the daughter, all she's filled with is fear, with the thought of, why are they coming after me? Why do they think I've done something wrong and runs away? For fear of her life. And after this incident, the mother realizes, ah, she does not have the capacity to understand that this is her home. This is all of hers, this country, and I am her mother. Oh, it's too much for her. So instead, the mother sends out one of her workers and instead offers her a job taking care of the stables where the animals are, working in the garden. And she accepts and comes to live on the grounds of where her mother lives. And day after day, there she is working with the workers. And then the mother dresses up in in rags, just like one of the other workers, to begin to work alongside of her. And then... Over many, many years, very, very gradually, as this relationship between the mother and the daughter continues to grow as they work in the stables and in the garden, there's this connection that starts to happen. And it's not until right before the mother is about to die that she begins to let the daughter know, ah, I can now tell you that you were actually my daughter, and this, this is your true home. This nobility and all this wealth around you is actually your birthright. And it was then that the daughter can say, oh yes, now I see, now I see that I can claim this. And maybe it's the same thing for us. We're just here to come to rest in this nobility and wealth that is our birthright. Our true home of simply being awake, being aware. It's just that we don't have the capacity for it. getting so lost in habitual conditioning that prevents us from really opening up and resting in that home that is just right here and is surrounding us. So not becoming anybody different, just finding what's already here. Just that one step of opening in that way.
So how, this, how can this influence the way I practice? And doing the exact same practice, same practice, different story. I'm here just to be the door person, just to notice the guests that are coming through. When I find myself in the restaurant, oh, in the restaurant, coming back to the door. When I find myself shutting the door, oh, opening the door. Just being the door person. To begin to rest in this nobility and wealth of simply being aware. And what I get from this story at times is that so much of this practice, what I need to remember sometimes is not that I need to be aware, but that I need to deeply accept what's going on. Remember a fellow practitioner telling this uh, to me, she was like, yeah, I I don't remember to be aware, I just remember to accept, to have a quality of kindness to experience. And then, and then awareness follows right along. I find this so helpful, especially when there's this deep sense of unworthiness and I can be judging every single arising that happens in the mind. Having acceptance as the gateway. Accepting all the thoughts and emotions and even this obsessive craving to become someone perfect. And when I say acceptance, I'm not saying, of course, intentionally going into the restaurant with the guests. It's not acceptance. Acceptance is is seen. And when I'm lost in the restaurant, it's the noticing the lostness and coming back to being present. So so there still has to be this, this intention to stop the lostness when there's a recognition of it. But with an easefulness, not a fighting it, in some kind of manner. And sometimes really quite sharp with that, like I I know I've given this instruction to some people, even this willingness to to stop that thought mid-sentence, rather than, oh, yeah, I just want to keep on going a little bit farther with the story. Oh, right now. But with so much gentleness of acceptance of, oh, this is just what the mind does. Oh, now we're going to come back. To know... It's not that I'm trying to fix the mind. I'm just opening up a space to rest in awareness, to rest in that quality of nobility, that quality of the deep wealth that is already here. Don't have to figure out or fix. Just notice, and that's enough. To see, to feel into experience, whatever is arising. So it's one story, one story that might be helpful at times to set aside sometimes how the mind can complicate, at least I know my mind can complicate this linear story that I'm somebody that needs to get over here. So another perspective or another story that might be helpful that's different than the linear story. And sometimes we can get a 
sense of this by asking the question, or asking yourself the question, what is a complete life for you? What does it mean to live a complete life? When is life complete? Is a complete life one in which you live until you're 85? What about my friend who died when he was 18? Was his life complete or not? A child at eight or dying like another friend of mine at 45, or is your life complete only if you make it past 50? What's the complete life for you? When you get the job you always wanted? When you quit the job you thought you always wanted? (laughs) Or when you get the relationship you always wanted? Or when you leave the relationship you thought you always wanted? (laughs) When is your life complete? What are you holding out for? Is your life complete only when self-judgment ends? It can't happen before that? Is a complete life only when anxiety stops? What do you set up in your mind as a complete life? Because sometimes the things we set up in our mind for a complete life really are a setup. So when I see in my mind such a setup, what I try to remember, actually so well put in this, um, these few lines by this poet Alison Luderman, as I try to remember this other practice, this practice she describes so beautifully. She says, I'm learning to rest inside the word enough. It's rough, leathery consonants. It's F of finitude. Can you rest in this quality of enough? That this moment right now is enough. That this moment is complete. Another poem by David White. Same theme. He says, these few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now.
Would you be willing at times to taste this on your meditation retreat? Walking outside, oh, this is enough. Sitting here, oh, this is enough. Can I, can I feel into that? Not just the idea of it, but the feeling of that. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll just use these two words. Just this. Ah, uh, yeah, just this. So being awake to what's going on. And just this, just this is enough. Another story is from the Zen master Dogen. And again, I imagine Dogen, this is definitely a a teacher and a practitioner that had a really, um, had some really big questions about this idea that I start here in practice and I end up over here. He thought our idea of time was really quite foolish and deluded and that it actually destroyed our practice. So he talked about and wove a story about practice and awakening that was very different. That's different than starting over here and ending up over here. So I want to share with you a passage. This is from uh, a fascicle, an essay of his, called Gyoji, which uh, one translation, which fits well, is, uh, means ceaseless practice. This is his description, and I'll I'll parse it apart. It's a little complex, but he says, The great way of Buddhas invariably involves unsurpassed, ceaseless practice. He's using our language. This continually, this willing to be present, not even being present, just the willingness to be present. So this ceaseless practice in that way. This practice rolls on in a cyclic manner, without interruption. It's not linear. It's cyclic. And in this cyclic manner, there's not a moment's gap has occurred in the practitioner giving rise to the intention to realize Buddhahood, in their doing the training and the practice, in their experience of of awakening, and their realization of Nibbana or Nirvana. For the great way of ceaseless practice rolls on just like this. Did you hear what he's saying? That in this moment, in a moment of practice, in a moment of mindfulness, there's the giving rise to the intention to realize awakening. There's the practice happening, and there's realization going on. It's all happening right now in this cyclic manner, not getting anywhere. He used to call this practice realization, that they're not two separate things. 
As he says, this is a practice realization of totally culminated awakening. Traps and snares can never reach it. If you understand this, you are completely free like the dragon when she gains the water, like the tiger when she enters the mountain. So here it is that in the moment of practice, we get to have the taste of practice and awakening. And as he says, in another passage, which is so important, that there are those who realize beyond realization. So then we don't have a linear progression. We just have this moment of practice and realization. And then after that, there's a deeper moment of practice and realization. And then there's a deeper moment of practice and realization. But we never get anywhere. It's like there's nowhere to go. It's just in a cycle of going beyond realization. But not this linear progression. How to get a sense of this in our practice? How can this story be helpful? And what I tie it to is a teaching by this uh, Thai forest monastic, Ajahn Sumedho. He says, really, a moment of practice, all that's going on is the Buddha is knowing the Dharma. So in a moment of being mindful, I can have the idea that I am being mindful. It's just crazy, right? Then I'm stuck in being somebody and getting somewhere. And again, that's a good story. I use it a lot. I use it every day. I'm not trying to say that's a bad story. But we might have a different sense of what it means to be aware. Right? Because Buddha is just awake, it's just wakefulness, a moment of wakefulness. Oh, there's the Buddha. There it is, right there. Oh, feeling the breathing. There it is. Oh, the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. The, 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 the Buddha is knowing, knowing, breathing. Wakefulness is aware of breathing. Oh, and then there's another moment of that. A moment of noticing anger, of a pain in your knee. Moment after moment after moment, just like this. Going on ceaselessly, practice and realization. Ryokan once, uh, the poet, wrote a poem, and he asked the question, my legacy, my legacy, what will it be? Right? What will become of my life? What's, what's my legacy I'm leaving behind? He said, the cuckoo in summer and the crimson maple in autumn. Can that be your legacy, to simply be here with a moment of the sound of the bird or the, the sight of a leaf 
or the feeling of the breath and to see that this, this is enough. So may our practice here together lead to the liberation of all beings in this beautiful cyclic way. I'll just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.